This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 239. And the quote of the day is, A true friend is someone who can see through the act, but still enjoys the show. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers, music industry professionals, and thought leaders. Inspiration, education, and motivation for drumming, and beyond, and beyond, and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast, and this session is coming out right as I'm at NAMM. So if you send me an email in the next week or so and I'm a little slow to respond, that is the reason why I'm at NAMM this week. It's a little early. And for those of you who are at NAMM, hit me up. Let me know if you're if you're out in sunny California, and we can definitely meet up. I'd love to, love to say hello, love to hang, and love to chat with you. So... Also, if you are getting any value out of these podcasts, if you enjoy listening to them every week, I ask that you pledge some support at drummersresource.com forward slash support. And you can you can support with a dollar a month, $2 a month, $5 a month, all the way up to $100 a month and more as much as you'd like. But every little bit helps. So even the dollar pledges and $2 pledges. And for all of you who have done that already, I really do appreciate it. And all of that money goes to just hiring more staff, getting more money to Justin so he can help with some of the administrative duties and things like that. So, uh, you know, help pays for hosting and all of that stuff. And you also get some cool prizes in return for it. And you can learn all about it if you go to drummersresource.com forward slash support. Now, the conversation I have today is with Morgan Rose. And for those of you who don't know who Morgan is, Morgan is the founding drummer and and has been with, with the band Seven Dust ever since their their start in 96. And it turns out we have some mutual friends and they actually toured together. Their first big tour was with the Bloodhound Gang, who my good friend is the DJ from the Bloodhound Gang. So it ended up being a very small world. And he has so many stories that I have a sneaking suspicion that this is not going to be the last time that we get him on the podcast. Just because he has so many stories and he's such a, a great dude to talk to. And we talk a lot about just sort of the 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 road of starting from nothing and building it into a successful band like they did with seven dust and all of the, the cool sort of serendipitous things that happened throughout the career, the way that they got signed is a, a, just an amazing, it's actually less amazing, more crazy coincidental serendipitous story about how they get signed and all of the hard work that goes into sustaining a band and all of those, all of those things. And, like I said, he's just a, a really cool guy. I'm super, super excited that we got to know each other. We actually spoke for about an hour and a half on the phone before we did the interview. We've been talking since. I think he's going to do a podcast, just or his own podcast, just a lot of great things that came out of this this relationship. And he and I have never met before, so I'm glad that we got connected. And I am going to stop yapping, and we are going to get into this conversation with the great Morgan Rose. Morgan, what's happening, man? Hey, buddy. Thank you for thank you for doing this. Is cool. Like we, you and I have got we got like some serious uh, we got some serious hang time before this. Yeah, man, definitely. I usually I usually just get like podcasts that haven't been recorded. Actually, what's that? But I feel like we've done like three of these without even recording it. <laughs> yeah. That's good. We can like we can pull from inside jokes and and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. 
So for I always like to build a little bit of like backstory context for the people who are listening who may not know who you are or know who you are, don't know a lot about you, whatever the case may be. I know you're a Jersey guy originally. Uh, you moved to Atlanta. You were young though, right? You were saying that like you you've lived there most of your life. Yeah, I I moved. I was born in uh, New Brunswick, Middlesex Hospital, uh, and grew. Well, didn't grow up, but spent my first five years in Metuchen, New Jersey. And uh, my family was from New York and, uh, you know, had moved over into Jersey. So my dad and grandparents on his side of the family were all from Brooklyn. And uh, my Nana lived in Staten Island and uh, moved everybody over to Jersey. So Metuchen was my spot. And then we moved from there uh, to Atlanta and when my parents split, my dad went to Tampa, my mom and stepdad went to Atlanta. And then it was kind of, you know, bouncing around. I'd go and live down in St. Pete with my grandparents for a year. And then, you know, I didn't like rules. So I'd say, this sucks here. And I'd go back to Atlanta. <laughs> and I went from being an A student to, you know, C and D student because there were a lot less rules in Atlanta. Then I'd go back to St. Pete and make A's again. And, uh, you know, everything was pretty stable for me, uh, as much as that might sound unstable, it was pretty stable. Uh, my dad lived in Tampa with a, uh, battle axe of a wife that I didn't really want to be a part of. So, um, I ended up, uh, leaving Florida for good in ninth grade. So I spent my eighth grade year there where I was like one of the most popular kids in school and then moved to Atlanta and uh, that started this whole downward spiral of insecurity and, and oblivion where I went from being really popular and feeling good about myself to hitting puberty and feeling like, you know, the world hated me. So uh, high school wasn't the best. And um, then I got done with that, took a year off to figure out where I was going to, you know, dig the hole for myself and uh, decided to go to MI. I was more into sports in high school and stuff, and then always kind of like music. Um, were you play like Were you playing drums already then? You know, I was. I got a kit when I was in eighth grade. I had my first kit when I was probably four or five years old. My dad got me a. Uh, well, my nana got me the kit. Got me a Ludwig. Um, never had played, you know, at all other than the typical pots and pans, but. My dad was friends with all these guys in in Jersey. Uh, you know, Todd Rundgren was a good friend of his, um, Leslie West, and my dad was gonna actually was offered to be in Mountain. I was gonna but, say, Le what was Leslie West in Mountain, right? Yeah, yeah. So like he had these opportunities, and he said he didn't have the confidence. He didn't think that he was good enough to do it, so he just never did it. But so he what was, was your dad a guitar player? Yeah, he was a guitar player. Oh, cool. So, um, I mean, I was at, apparently I was at one of the Song Remains the Same shows with my parents. Um, my parents took me to see Ziggy Stardust and they couldn't get me in. They couldn't get in at all. And I mean, this goes to show you the difference in times now. But my mother, you know, uh, actually asked the one of the ushers, you know, my my little boy here, he loves David Bowie. Could you just bring him in and let him see a little bit? He was really excited to see him. Just hands me off to a complete stranger, you know, <laughs> to go in to see. I mean, 
who knows what the hell that dude did to me, you know. <laughs> but I mean, so I went in and I saw it. And I mean, I have to tell you, I vaguely, I mean, I, shit, I was probably three or four years old. You know, I was a kid, baby. And for some reason, I feel like it. I can remember some of that. I know there's no way, but I've, I've made myself believe that I actually remember some of that stuff. Uh, my mom and dad split and my mother was dating a guy that was in a band called named the raspberries that had Eric Carmen in it. Mm -hmm. And I remember, you know, I mean, I could talk to you. This podcast could last 10 hours, man. If I told you this whole deal, this is actually a, a 10 podcast, a 10 series podcast. It's like oh. a mini, we're doing like a mini series. Oh, perfect. <laughs> All right. Well then you'll, it'll be me for like three months. <laughs> No, I'm saying that's what I mean. It's going to be you. It's a mini series of you. <laughs> oh, I love it. So I remember, though, you know, like nowadays people, you know, can I, you know, bring my, you know, brother up to see your drums and stuff like that? I'm like, I don't care. Of course, you know, no big deal. But I remember, you know, the crew guys, they don't like anybody banging on anything. And I remember going to this Raspberry show and them sitting me on the drums while they were taking them down after the show was over and here I am blasting off on the drums while this poor drum tech's trying to take them apart. He probably <laughs> just wanted me dead. But, uh, but anyway, the point is I was, I was born into it. You know, they had me in, into music really early. My dad, you know, my Nana gets me this kid at four or five years old and my dad immediately, you know, is like, I want to teach you how to play this tune. And, uh, I, he tells me that, uh, that it was a different song, but I'm pretty sure that if it was six was uh, six was nine by Hendrix, so it was just separating the limbs, you know, opening the hat at the right time, and especially the intro, you know, doo -doo, it's, mm -hmm. that whole deal. So he said that when I did that, he knew, you know, there's no way a kid this young uh, should be able to figure this stuff out. I mean, I would sit there with headphones on in a rocking chair by myself for hours listening to Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Zeppelin and the Eagles and Loggins and Messina. And like this stuff, I, I remember, uh, I, I remember not really doing it, but I do. It, it's weird. Like it, 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 there's like flashbacks where I'm like, I kind of remember that. I kind of remember putting trilogy from Emerson, Lake and Palmer on and rocking in this chair and my parents, you know, going off and doing whatever the hell they wanted to do for a few hours. So, um, anyway, I, I basically, after a few months of that, at four or five years old, I retired. And uh, then I picked them back up when I was in eighth grade. And uh, so then all through high school, you know, I really didn't play much. I did get a kit, you know, into Atlanta because I'd moved from Florida, you know, back to Atlanta. And uh, so I had a kid in my neighbor's uh, attic. So I would go up there every now and again after school, and I would go and play a little bit and um, never really did much. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I just figured, you know, I got to do something. And I ended up in this little garage band with uh, a guy by the name of Robert Hayes. And uh, he was in a band called the Jody Grind out of Atlanta for a while. They were on the cusp of doing something really special and, and actually – him and the drummer were in a car with another performer and uh, got in a car accident oh. on Easter years ago, and uh, they were both killed in the accident. So he oh, was oh man, that's horrible. Yeah, it was really brutal. He was he was like my mentor in a sense that 
he he liked everything before everybody liked it, and then when everybody liked it, then he hated it, and then he would go on <laughs> to the next thing, and and it was uncanny how he would be into music that nobody in the popular world would like, and then once they did, you know, he was out, and I'd kind of followed him around. Uh, people might have thought I was, you know, had my my ears to the ground, you know, and and was able to come up with what was going to be the next thing, but really it was all him. I mean. He was the first person to let me hear Megadeth. You know, it was Killing is My Business. Mm. And, uh, you know, the first person to let me hear Anthrax and Metallica and that whole speed metal world. Uh, he was actually the one that really, even before that, you know, he got me into Pink Floyd. They were popular already, of course. But, um, you know, he just kind of led the way for me. And uh, he ended up going out. To I would jam with him and play really obscure songs. You know, we would play stuff off of records that wasn't really the popular stuff off of records. So like that the was B side. Yeah, all B side stuff. And uh, so he would. Uh, For those of you listening who don't know what the B side is, it was yeah. there are these things called cassettes, <laughs> and on yeah, the cassettes totally. they had side A and side B, and all the good totally and all the singles that. and the popular songs were on side A, and then on the B side were all the things that they said that nobody would listen to exactly they, uh, <laughs> thanks for clearing that up there and <laughs> clarifying <laughs> so uh anyway it was this is this is how it all went down for me is you know i'm 18 years old i have no nowhere to go i mean i i'm i have no real skill set um i want to be a baseball player but i'm already 18 and and i haven't played enough organized high school ball to really even be considered anywhere um, I have some friends that say they might be able to hook me up with a open tryout, you know, but really it was, you know, I was already too old, you know, I mean, it, to just start really at 18 was going to be rough. And here, my buddy, Robert Hayes has about to be done with the first six months of MI out in California. And he said, you should come out here, you know, you can move in with me and we can split the rent and, you know, all that. And uh, I just decided to do it. So I had gotten in a car accident and gotten a little bit of money from that. So I used the money to uh, go out to California, moved out there. And, uh, you know, I mean, I will have to tell you this. I mean, they asked for a uh, audition tape to, you know, send in to MI and that would be your audition to whether you were accepted or not. And I mean, I knew like three rudiments and I'm swear the beat must've been do, do that, that, like, and then do a blues beat. Do, do that, got do that. You know, it's like, everything was the same. It was terrible. Right. Never thought I was going to get accepted and, uh, they accepted me. So anyway, I get there. And the first person that I see when I walk into the apartment, first of all, I'm just a little redneck from Georgia, really. Uh, no matter how much I want to say, you know, I was born in New Jersey. You know, I grew up down here. And, uh, you know, semi-sheltered down here. And uh, here I am in Los Angeles, right behind a Chinese theater on a Moore Drive and a Moore Arms Apartments in the middle of, you know, kill people Hollywood Boulevard right and uh, the first person I see when I walk into this apartment that I'm gonna move into is John Frusciante what swear to God so he had purple hair down to his waist 
and he was playing a guitar that he had made that was that had naked he was really good friends with Robert by the way um and he had and it had naked girls all over it and then it was you know he had uh you so, know but what year was this this is i think 89 maybe it was 90 but 89 or 90 so he wasn't like he wasn't John Frusciante, though, right? No, no, not at all. Yeah. He uh, knew, I mean, the, the funny thing about him was that, like, he was a phenomenal player. Like, he loved Steve Vai, he loved Frank Zappa, he, he loved Hendrix. I mean, that was, like, his, those were his go-tos. Um, and I was, I was friends with him. His best friend's name, uh, Bill, and I became really good friends with Bill, and, uh, so we would hang out together, but the irony to the whole thing is John didn't drink really very much at all, and he hated drugs. Um, hmm. So uh, here he, you know, here he is. He's uh, this unbelievable player. I mean, I played, uh, I think I played Attitude Song with him at performance class. I I think that I did. I know I played a song with him. I think it was Attitude Song though. But um, he hated the school. And Bill hated the school, and my friend Robert, he he went through it, and he finished the school, and he was going to actually finish six months before me, and uh, I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I, you know, I had some great teachers. I had Steve Houghton there. I had Joe Picaro. I mean, these are monster players sure. and great teachers, and I really did not hear a word that they said. Um, ironically, I really didn't know what I was doing there. I wasn't into drugs or alcohol when I got there, uh, but I ended up hanging out with some people that were very much into drugs and alcohol, and I liked that after I got introduced to that. <laughs> and then I ended up somehow at some party somewhere, and I ended up meeting this guy that had a band from D.C. They were called D.C. Punks, uh, and they basically said, you're in the band. I never played a note for them. And uh, they said, you're in a band. And I was like, oh, man, I'm in a band in California. And, you know, Warrant had just gotten signed. So the hair days were, were happening. Full full effect. Full force. Yeah, like Warrant wasn't even big yet. I remember going to, like, the country club in L.A. And they were there and a paparazzi was taking pictures. And I was like, who are these dudes? You know, like, <laughs> I don't know who the hell they are. But Kix was there recording Blow My Fuse. And these guys knew them from the you know from that whole virginia dc connection they were all from there right i ended up do you know uh, that whole like dc uh go-go music thing like the the go-go scene and the and sort of like the punk scene that was happening in dc at the same exact time i don't know about that one and like these guys neither one of them knew about it and then they started like joining forces and were and doing stuff together there's a documentary about it i, I forget what it's called uh Chuck Trees told me all about it, and I yeah, you gotta let me. I'll know let it. you know about it. It's really interesting, man. It's like it because it was, it was like this one side of the neighborhood. It was like all black, and then the other side of the neighborhood was all white. And then there was there was I forget what the guy's name was, but he was like sort of like integrated this band, and then all these other bands started integrate. It was it's a really cool, really cool story. And they were like, That's man, cool. we didn't even know that this like this stuff was happening. You right. know, on the other side of the of town, and, and right. there was like these two subcultures happening inside of DC. It's really interesting. Yeah, there's crazy talent out of that whole area. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. 
most of the people that I've met that I've become buddies with in the bands that I that I know, I'm like, Jesus, man, like it's in the water there. You guys are all crazy good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole like I mean that's where like Dennis Chambers is from, and I mean there's uh, I mean there's there, there's a ton of people. Marcus Miller's from there. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. I mean, there's a ton of people from from that area, like that Baltimore, D.C. area. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I end up at you know I'm I'm invited to some of these things that you know I mean remember I don't know what the hell I'm doing there. Like I'm not good enough to be doing anything. I mean, I'm not good enough to be in a band. I've never played like with a band ever, other other than cover songs. I've never played an original song in my life, and uh, so I had, you know, my hair all whooped to the right, you know, and all jacked up, and uh, I, you know, thank like God, like Flock of Seagull style, or like uh, it was, it was just like you know the hair band stuff, nice, you know? okay. But it was like it, I'm trying so, to paint a metal picture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it it was just like all those dudes. I was just one in a million, you know. And uh, it was funny though. I'm glad that Pantera, you know, told everybody deal with it. We did it too, and then it made it okay for all of us to admit that we did it before. But uh, you know, I ended up being invited to all this stuff. So like, I'm going to you know album release parties at Tom Worman's house for Blow My Fuse, and I'm hanging out with kicks and i'm not going to say any names but i do know that you know yeah we were doing you know coke was was happening and Mm -hmm. lots of drinking was happening but i'd never seen anything crazy and i went to a party at their house at their apartment where they were staying and absolutely no question i'm sitting on the couch and i see a dude just tie his arm off and shoot his arm up right there in front of me and you're and, like whoa this is heavy oh yeah i was like okay um you know i can't I, this this is like crazy to me i didn't think that shit was even real you right. know like never seen anything like that That's you're like nothing. this is what you see in a movie yeah this isn't happening so i was just starting to get a little bit worn out you know i was i was already drinking at you know 18 or 19 and doing it consistent you know on consistent night i wasn't going to school at all um i was definitely doing drugs and in this band that i never played with so i just remember that the guy that ran the band can't remember his name uh he was the guitar player and the singer and i thought they were pretty cool and uh we went to rehearse one day finally and I had my drums there, and we went in there to rehearse, and I played, and I could tell right away they didn't like me. Right away, <laughs> it was like, okay, dude, that's cool, first drummer in L.A. And we played through, and it was just like, it was really, it was brutal, because it went from, you know, we were, a, we were a unit. I mean, we were like a gang of this band that would, you know, go everywhere together and do all this stuff together. And they were really my end to all this stuff to, I mean, the dude had given me a bunch of clothes and stuff like that. And, you know, it was like, we were, we were a band. And in one second after we left there, I got the call, Hey man, uh, you know, we're, we're going to fire you. Like I had one rehearsal, you know. I was in the band for a month without ever playing. And I was gonna say, how'd you end up in the band? They've never seen you play before. They're just like, yeah, "Eh, whatever. You're in the band. That drill, you know. Back in the day, it was in the ads. It was, you know, 
gear and looks a must. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I had the gear, and I, I guess to them I had the looks, but there was no chops. So, <laughs> I mean, here I am. I'm basically, I guess, at that point, I'm on my way to being an alcoholic drug addict, uh, and I just got fired out of a band that I never really was in. And my my roommate, who I look up to, is about to graduate because you know at MI it's every six months they start a new semester. Right. So uh, I was like, this dude was calling me at my apartment. You know, give me my effing clothes back, dude, or I'm gonna come beat your ass. And I'm like, oh my god, dude! I went from going to parties with kicks to this guy threatening to beat me up if I don't give him his Motley Crue shirt back. <laughs> You know, like what just happened? And I called a friend of mine up in Atlanta and I said, will you please fly out to California and I'll pay for it and just drive home with me? Because it's like a three day drive. Yeah. And I got to come home with my tail between my legs because I have flunked out of California. <laughs> and he was like, yes. Yeah, so I'm, so, I'm not laughing at you. It's Dude, just... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, the funny thing is, is of all the interviews that i've done in 20 years i don't know if i've really i definitely have never gone this in depth with the story i, mean, I like it i like it so i mean you I know and you know and just to cut you off for one second the, the why i like it is because this this stuff's important like i think that everyone sees the end product right sure so they're like oh like it's easy you know it's easy from working to be like oh just work hard and then go you know and it's like look man i've been through my fair share of crappy stuff too you know like sure i went through all this shit and like i failed out and or not failed out but like you know i i would you say i failed i i flunked flunked out of los angeles you know what i mean like so like that that's part of the journey though and i think that not or painting the picture that there's like none of this this failure or or none of these things that happen that that get in the way to leave those out of the story is like sort of a half truth you know oh yeah man i mean it's it's yeah, there's definitely plenty of stories of people that woke up, they they had sticks in their hands when they came out of the hole and, you know, they were in a band for a, a year and they got a deal and, you know, everything was groovy. But most of the stories, I'm probably not in the minority, you know, I mean, of course. my life story is definitely uh, unique, but my my career is, you know, it's filled with failures. I mean, there's when I got back to Atlanta, I didn't know anybody. The guy that I played with, you know, ended up, you know, jamming with me some more and we would jam these songs. And so I was still playing with him, but there was no band. And then he joined the Jody Grind band and he had a real band, you know, that was mm. doing real well. So I was just left with nothing. I joined another garage band and, uh, you know, we would play house parties and stuff and stuff that I totally was not into. It was. It was stuff that, as much as I like it now, you know, uh, you know, the Eric Clapton stuff and, you know, some classic rock stuff that, you know, uh, Steve Miller and stuff like that. You know, I mean, I was playing that kind of stuff and I barely knew how to play that. So I'm overplaying that stuff, too. And uh, but with that band, I was playing this, you know, house party and this band from town. Ironically enough, back then there was a woman named Morgan Fairchild, you know, that was kind of a sex symbol. Mm -hmm. And uh, the name of the band was Fairchild. And they came because they had heard that there was this drummer in, you know, in the suburbs that was playing these house parties that might be good for their band. So 
they asked me if I would want to try out, and I did, and I got the gig, and it was my first band that I ever, you know, it was 1991. It was the first band that I really was ever in that was playing original music. And hmm. uh, they had already run their course in Atlanta for, you know, two or three years, and they were really big for a little while because it was just starting to happen. And then the, a scene was being built, and they were the the start of the scene. But then as that started to get older over those two or three years, other bands were coming out and they were all cooler looking, playing cooler songs and better at it. And, uh, you know, I ended up basically joining a band that was not really respected in town. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and the singer was just, this, uh, he was awesome. You know, he, he took me under his wing and he taught me everything, you know, as far as just, you know, what it was like to put the hours in and rehearse and stuff like that. And uh, so that band was together for about a year. And then I got an offer to play in one of the bands that was doing really well in town. And this, again, this just goes to show you the name of this band was jet black. And uh, I joined this band and we were, they were playing like big places, places that actually, you know, seven dust comes back and plays now. Mm -hmm. oh, in, wow. in Atlanta, you know, so that's how big it was back then. And uh, so I did two shows with them and then they broke up. And I'm like, damn, you know, <laughs> like this is just not meant to be, you know, like I'm not supposed to be doing this. And I was visiting my dad, and the guitar player from Jet Black says, I have this guy I'm friends with. Uh, we want to start a band, we're going to call it Stiff Kitty. And I'm like, sounds good, man. You know, it's I'm in. Band. I'm in. You know, so we get back and we can't find a singer, so we end up finding this guy that I know to sing and his bass player to play bass. And the guy that called me says, I don't like the singer. I quit. So then we get the other guitar player's uh, friend that is actually uh, the guy that owns this telemarketing company to play guitar. So now we have a band. We go out and do that for a little while, and then we realize, yes, the singer might not be good enough to go any further than where we're at, so we get a new singer. And that goes on for a while, and we became huge in Atlanta. I mean, for a little while, we were like, we were the biggest band in Atlanta. We were headlining all these big venues, you know, that Seven Dust can play here. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, you feel like you're a rock star already, you know. Here I am, 21, 20, you know, and... I feel like, I mean, all this stuff that I'm saying sounds like it took 10 years to do, and it really took about a year. You know, oh, wow. it's just really fast. I mean, well, maybe a year and a half, you know, and it's like from, you know, being in LA, getting home, within six months, I'm in this Fairchild band. That lasts for a year. Then in two weeks, you know, after I'm done, I'm playing a gig with this Jet Black band. Uh, two weeks after that, we play the second gig and that band breaks up. Then, you know, three weeks after that, Stiff Kitty starts. And then within six months, you know, we've got the new singer and we're big in Atlanta. So it's like, with, realistically, maybe a two-year period, it was it was happening. Right. And uh, so, you know, we had a manager and, you know, we we're playing all the big places in town. And we, we got a, we ended up with a... Uh, co-pub deal to go in and you know record some music and that you know happened anyway that band was together about two and a half years and then it just wasn't going to happen and uh so me and the bass player 
and the guitar player end up hiring another singer and guitar player and we start a band snake nation and that goes for about a year and we had a demo deal with mca i think it was mca and uh we were on a 30-day retainer with them and i mean we we hated the singer of the band at the time and now i've seen him a few times he's a really great singer but the kind of guy that would lock himself in the room for a month or two and then come out and say i've got all the music and all the words for everything and we would sit in a rehearsal room sometimes for 3 hours while you know we would strum two chords and it was just it was painful and uh we all lived together so it was just like oh man really brutal and uh so we had this 30 day retainer and it's like counting down you know getting to the end of the 30 days it's at the end of the year and uh basically uh the 29th day i get a call from our manager JJ French, who ended up being a manager for Seven Dust. But I get a call from him on the 29th day, and it was the most hardcore cutthroat phone call I've ever gotten. And it was, okay, so listen, um, they so they passed. Uh, it happens. Um, you know, you guys need to regroup and think of what you want to do. Uh, I'm having a baby, so I really don't even know if I want to do this anymore, managing and stuff. But, you know, listen, I got to run. Uh, I got to go pick up, you know, so-and-so. Uh, listen, you know, we'll talk soon. And hangs the phone up. And I was just <laughs> like, uh, I thought I had a record deal. You know, we were going to the to the clubs in Atlanta basically telling them we got a deal. Like, they haven't called us back. That means we got a deal. Like, they have 30 days to do it. And uh, so it was over. It was right. like dream crushed, you know, done. And um, I was crushed over it. I didn't even know what to do. I felt like I was 50 years old trying to start my career over when really I was, you know, 21, right. 22. And, uh, and I hated the singer, and I felt like I spent all this time with this guy hoping I would get this deal. This is This is the mentality of a moron. I feel like I've wasted time with this guy, and I really wished I would have gotten the deal. I've wasted it, and then I didn't get the deal. When, in hindsight, I look back and go, if we would have gotten the deal, we'd have been broken up, or I'd have been fired in six months. Right. So, uh, Blessing in disguise, kind of. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. I believe that the band that got our record deal, they had one to give that they were willing to give at the end of the year. I'm pretty sure the band that they gave it to was Dave Matthews. So, oh, well, uh, not the worst decision on their part, right? Who was that? Corin Capshaw. I think what's that? I think Corin Capshaw. I think that's the person who signed Dave Matthews, didn't he? I don't know. I don't know. I can't remember um, the name of the guy that that we were dealing with, but um, but in any case, you know, here we are without a deal, and. Uh, you know, the singer was brutal to deal with. And I asked the bass player, I was like, man, you know, I don't know if I can, I can play with this guy anymore. You know, I don't know what to do. And he said, I'm going with you. And we knew this guy Well, we were living with a guy that said, you know, this guy, John lives down the hall. And, uh, you know, he, uh, he, he's got a bunch of songs you guys might like, you know, maybe he'd be a good fit. And I'm like, John Connolly. And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, that dude plays drums. And he goes, yeah. Well, he got fired out of uh, he got fired out of the Peace Dogs, and he's playing guitar, writing songs. So hmm. I'm like, all right, you know, I'll go down and check it out. 
and I'm thinking, this dude plays drums, man. I, I, there was no, for us, there was no Dave Grohl's back then. You know, if you play right. drums, play drums. Right. So anyway, and he was a good drummer at that. So anyway, we go down, and the first song that I heard on a little Fostex, you know, four track was Black, which ended up being the first single that Seven Dust ever had. So we went in and basically, uh, we basically went in and recorded a bunch of songs, just the three of us. And uh, you know, John would play guitar, and I would uh, I'd play drums, and Vinny would play bass, and me and John would sing. And uh, so we were just kind of playing around. It wasn't even, you know, we weren't even thinking about it being a band yet. We were just he wanted to record them, and we just were recording these tunes. Yeah, and right. my idea, and this is the the one thing I have said many times, is this was like this was the moment, you know. Was I looked at Vinny? We were going back to the house and seeing this singer every day that we couldn't stand at the time, and I was like, dude, I don't know what's gonna happen, but I know that I don't enjoy playing music anymore. Like I don't I don't enjoy playing in this band anymore. I do like playing with John though. Mm -hmm. And I like going out and having a beer with John when we're done. And, you know, I like hanging out with John. So why don't we forget about, you know, the dream of being a successful band and let's just have fun doing it. Because if it's going to be disappointment after disappointment, I'd rather, you know, enjoy what I'm doing on the, on the trip. Sure. And, you know, we'll go and frame houses and we'll go and mix concrete and do mason work and do our hard day at work. And then we'll, the reward will be when we're done at 5.30 or 6 o'clock, we'll go straight to the room, get a 40, sit down in there until 10 or 11 at night and have a good time, leave there, go to the bar down the road from the house, have a beer, go home, wake up at 7 or 8 in the morning, go and work again. But it'll be fun doing it. Right. And we had a blast. I mean, we just loved it. And then it got to the point where it was like, let's go ahead and find an, a singer for this thing, you know, cause we're not singers. We're just kind of, you know, hacking through it and maybe we'll make a band out of it. And we went and, you know, I knew Lejean and this guy Lee that played guitar for a band that Lejean was in. And, uh, they were, they played rock music. They played stuff like Pearl Jam and stuff like that, but we were doing heavier stuff. And he would come to our shows in Snake Nation, which was the band after Stiff Kitty, by the way. And uh, he would come to these shows. So he was younger than us, and he looked up to us. And I said, you want to do this? And we wanted to bring his guitar player so that you know he didn't feel intimidated too much. And he did it. And they came, and we started the band. And the first show we ever played, uh, John, our guitar player, put a guitar strap on for the first time in his life. Like, <laughs> That was the first time. So here we go from trying to get the best players in town and, you know, building this arsenal of talent, totally ignoring the fact that you probably should like the people that you're playing with. Of course. And uh, and that was the moment, you know. We put that band together. We loved each other. We were tight. We made the move to replace uh, the other guitar player, Lee, with Clint because – he was more of a fusion guy, number one. And number two, you know, he was, we saw his dedication. I remember John telling me, you know when it was, right? He told me this not that long ago, because this is 25 years ago. But he goes, you know what the moment was that we decided he had to go? And I was like, what was that? And he said, 
he was using my cabinets and instead of buying a cabinet, he went and bought a keyboard. Mm. And John said, dude, I'm out of this. I don't want to deal with this guy. This guy isn't a team player. So we got rid of him and got Clint. I could make another two episode story out of that whole transaction, but I'll just leave it at we got Clint. <laughs> and uh so, you know, the band noodled around for uh a few months actually. It wasn't even that long. And um we played a show over the Gavin convention in Atlanta at this dive bar that we would rehearse at and we would play there and we wouldn't have to pay rent if we would play there once a month and then they would keep the money and that was our rent. And uh, I lied to the band and said that we had a showcase, uh, you know, at this venue because nobody wanted to play. And uh, there was no Why show. didn't they want to play? Well, we were, I think somebody had something they wanted to do. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a, you know, eh, I don't feel like jamming kind of thing. It was more like I have, I have plans, you know, I can't play that weekend. And I said, dude, we got to play, man. We got a showcase. You know, Atlantic's coming. You know, that was the big thing. Right. Every time, you know, no matter who it was, it's like, man, I think Atlantic is showing up. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, nobody was coming. We were already, you know, all, we started as kind of like a pretty anticipated new local band. And then within six months to a year, you know, after getting rid of the first guitar player and everything, it was like, it was already getting kind of like, eh. You know, we're kind of looking to see the, the the people in the crowd would be like, yeah, we're kind of looking to see who else is going to make it out of here so we can say we knew them first because I don't think it's going to be you guys. So we already started to lose our, our little base of a following that we had. And plus, we were having to play once a month. With When you're doing that at home, it starts to, you know, take away the uh, – it wasn't so much an event anymore. It was like, oh, what day of the month are you guys playing – Right. So I did a we did a residency at a place for a long time, like a, like two years, the first Saturday of every month. Yeah. Uh, same thing. Like after a while, it's just like, oh, well, I don't need to come this week because I know you'll, I'll, you know, I know you'll be there next month. So it doesn't exactly. matter. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, so we go to play the show there, and we had made some demo tapes tapes, kids. You know, like this is cassette tapes. Yeah, man, real deal. Yep. And uh, we couldn't manufacture them. So, again, the owner of this club said, hey, I'll go ahead and pay for them to manufacture, you know, 500 of them or something. And uh, all you got to do is let me print the rec room and the phone number on one side of the cassette. So you put Seven Dust on one side and, you know, you put all your songs on it. And then on the other side, put the rec room. And, you know... If you actually, it was crawl space back then. It wasn't Seven Dust, but we had to change the name. But you, you know, you put your band name on one side, and then I'll advertise on the other side. So we had we were advertising the venue on the other side of the cassette tape. Smart, that's smart of the business owner. Yeah, yeah, very. And uh, and we had no shame. You know, we were like, oh, we got some demos. You know, we're mm -hmm. selling. We got a we got a tape out, man. Right, right. You know, so we go play this show. Fifty people there shows beat we don't even you know i don't even remember I, I think we were not very good and uh we go upstairs into this attic that was the dressing room and this woman walks up there and she's wasted and she says i love your band i'm gonna get you guys signed 
you know, can you print me a hundred CDs? Can I get a hundred CDs tonight? And I'm like, uh, no, <laughs> like we don't have any CDs. Uh, we have tapes and they're for sale. Like we don't, we can't even give you any of that. And she's like, all right, well, here's my number. And she writes her number down on a napkin and hands it to me. And I'm like, okay, yeah, cool. And she turns around to walk away and I crumbled the shit up and threw it on the ground. <laughs> and, uh, I'm like, you know, who is that? You know, and she said, I work for TVT Records. And again, you know, I'm like, I never heard of that. Never heard of that label. And uh, so we just ignored it. And about a week later, man, a week later, I get a phone call at my house from the owner of the club. The girl went down, bought the tape on her way out for three bucks or whatever, went back to New York, was playing the tape in her office. And somebody in the office came by and said, who the hell is that? And she said, this band that I saw in Atlanta, which, mind you, the backstory to this is the people from TVT Records that were there that night were looking for a strip club, couldn't find it, and had to pull in somewhere to go to the bathroom. And they pulled it in the venue that we were playing to go to the bathroom. And then they saw us, and the girl said, hold on, let's not leave. I want to hear this band. I like this band. And then that was how that whole thing started. Total fluke. Like, thank God wow. for you know. So she ends up, they end up calling the number on the tape. And it's the club owner. And he calls me and goes, dude, I think you might get a record deal. Like, very nonchalant, man. This girl's calling me, man. I think you might be getting a record deal. <laughs> I'm like, I never heard of this label, man. Like, who is this? And we just so happen to be friends with this girl that was like a street team worker for uh i think sony at the time and our guitar player clint was living with her and he said yeah it's labeled tvt and she like dropped her stuff and said are you kidding me like that's a really cool label now like they have trent Reznor. they got nine inch nails yeah and we're like what so immediately we're scrambling and we're calling them and so that was probably in like September, and they said, when are you playing next? We want to bring the president down to see you. And we booked a show at the masquerade for the next month and told everybody that this was a showcase for us to, you know, we were going to get a deal. We put that out there again. And uh, he flew down three weeks later. We played the show, and I jumped in a van with him and my dad and the guys in the band and our manager and we're driving down the road in this van going to dinner after the show. And I hear him say to our manager, so we could record this in June and have the record out hopefully in September. And I looked over at my dad and I was like, I think I'm getting a record deal like right now. <laughs> right in this van. <laughs> like in this van. I think they're negotiating the short form of a record deal right now. And it was over. Like that was it. It happened. It's right insane. Then. Yeah. Right place, right time, man. I mean, it happens. Yeah. You know? It's like total fluke. We come out, there's nobody that's really, I mean, I wouldn't say there's nobody doing our style of music, but there was no Slipknot. There was no Disturbed. There was no Godsmack. There was no none of that. Mm -hmm. There was none of those bands. There was no Stained. There was basically us, Snot, uh, Limp Biscuit was just kind of getting ready to get going. Corn had been around for a year or two. And uh, 
you know, that was really it on the up and coming bands. You know, I think Machine Head might have been around or they were all around the same time. But I mean, it was like, you know, it was brand new. We come out, our record comes out the first week on tax day and it sells 311 copies, which of course I'll never forget because of the band. <laughs> I was like, yeah, dude, we just sold to everybody that we know in Atlanta. <laughs> no clue of like how that worked or anything. Right. And the next week it sold like 415. I was like, oh my God, dude, who's buying this record? Like who's buying it? We don't know that many people. And, uh, <laughs> You know, the next week it was 500, then it was six something, then 750, then 900, then it hit a thousand. And, you know, then we had, uh, you know, sold a million records. They're like, wow. I mean, yeah, we left home. We were gone for uh, 21 straight months. So, what does like the touring look like from there? Like, when you, because when you start, you're playing at smaller venues. We played like they got us out on the road just to like, they stuck us in a van and said, you know, sleep. However many people you're going to fit in that van, sleep that many in a hotel room. So we would get Roach Motels, you know, and we mm-hmm. would sleep seven of us, eight of us in there with two or three crew guys and uh, the band with sleeping bags, sleeping on the ground, flipping coins for the bed, sleeping three in a bed. And, uh, you know, we would go city to city. We played like, I want to say we only did about a month like that. And then they called us up and they said, we have a tour for you guys. You guys are going to go on tour with Sponge and Tonic and Bloodhound Gang. And we're like, oh, my God, we're going to be big. You know, <laughs> it's going to happen. Right. We have a tour, you know, like with other bands that we've heard of. And uh, so it was the Roar Tour. And the first two shows of it were in like Minneapolis and then Milwaukee. And those shows were humongous. I mean, here we are. We've never played in front of more than maybe 150 people in this band. And there's like 20,000 or more. And it was mayhem. I mean, I was like, oh, my God, dude. Like, we're going to make it. This is going to happen. And then the Roar Tour actually started because these two were the beginning of the tour. And they were they were linked up with radio shows. Which, again, we don't know anything about any of this. We don't know how radio works. We don't know how any of the promotion or marketing works. We don't know jack shit. We don't know anything about anything other than we're, you know, we're going to tee off on every other band that comes around us. Because at the time, it was like we were like death metal. We were so much heavier than everybody. Right. And uh, and we're especially the bands they were putting us with, you know. And uh, so we're on this tour. They started us off. We were the last band added to the Roar Tour. And it was two stages and about maybe 12 bands. And we're playing first on the second stage. And that lasted for about three or four days until the band playing second said, we don't want to play after them. It's brutal. So then they moved to the first slot. We moved to the second. And then it just became domino effect. That thing lasted about six weeks. And one by one, we were knocking bands off because they didn't want to play after us. Right. So that's a good feeling. Yeah. That would, that felt good. We were very, uh, very respectful and thankful to be where we were at. But our whole thing was, you know, we're going to have to beat people up to get where we want to be. because yeah, we are there to win. I mean, there's, yeah. you know, there's no winning, but like, you know, you're there to, you're there to crush. 
Yeah, I mean, and it was unfair. You know, it, it had zero to do with with talent or ability or any of that. It was just a total mismatch in styles. You had rock bands with a with a heavy band, and we were very energetic. Right. And, uh, so we were just teeing off on everybody. And uh, we ended up on the main stage. Again, with all this happening, there's still 25 people in an amphitheater. I right. mean, there's nobody there. So we did that. And then uh, we ended up going from that tour straight on the road with the Nixons, who were on the Roar tour. And I'll never forget that happening. It was a band called Cellophane, who the drummer of the band was Moke, who's played with everybody. Mm-hmm. And... The bass player was Doug, who ended up being in Puddle of Mud. And then there was a singer. I can't remember his name, but they were a really cool band. They were playing first. We were playing second. Nixons were playing headline. And we got through about a week of that, and the singer from the Nixons called us into his bus. At this point now, we have an RV, so we're on our way to you know mega billions. And uh, you know we've graduated from the van to an RV. And... Uh, he calls us in the bus and he says, listen, um, we want you guys to move to first. And we're like, what are you talking about? And he said, um, you know, we need you guys to move to first because you guys go up there and destroy the whole stage. And then I come, I'll never forget this quote. You guys go up there and destroy the whole stage. And then I go up there with my trumpet. <laughs> and I was like, and I'm sitting in the back of the bus and it was really I mean, again, we're extremely respectful and appreciative guys. But we knew at this point, after you know three months of being out here, that that slot was definitely... There was more people coming to these shows than there were going to those Roar Tour shows. Right, right. It was like, playing first is tough. Playing second is perfect. Yeah. And we like being in second. We like that. And that was what our contract was. So we we used to play this place in Philly all the time, and there was like three or four bands on there, and the headliner would always go last. And oh, yeah. we were always like, we don't want to go. Like we would headline it every time, but we were like, we don't want to go last. We want to go second or third. Yeah, you know, absolutely, absolutely. So I remember I looked at everybody in the band, and at that time I was very much the spokesman for the band, and I said no. We're not going to do that. And he goes, "What?" And I'm like, "No, man. That's you know, we're we're going to play second because that's what the deal was, and the money's different." And he goes, "The money will be the same." And I'm like, "No, no, because there's more people there when we play than there is when Cellophane plays, and we need to play in front of as many people as possible." Sure. And he was like, "Well, we didn't." There's another one I'll never forget. He said, "Well, we didn't want it to get to management. I guess it's going to get to management." And I went, that's fine. And we got out of that bus and an hour later went on stage and destroyed them worse than we've ever destroyed any band before or since. <laughs> because it was like, that's the end of that. And uh, their management said, you can't do it. It's a contractual thing. You'll have to pay them for the rest of the tour and then we'll have to get somebody else. So we basically spent the next three weeks just trying to dismember them. And... Uh, <laughs> And we really liked everybody in the band. I'm still very close with John, you know, who's in Seether now. He right. was the drummer for them at the right, time. Right, right. And, uh, and they're all great guys. You know, it was just, we were starting to drink then, and we knew that we needed any opportunity we could get, we were going to take. And uh, so we did that, and then nobody would take us out. So they stuck us with Snot and out of L.A., 
and the two of us became the tightest two bands ever like in brotherhood because nobody would take either one of us out and um and they were vicious live so they ended up really helping us stay on top of the game because if we took a night off they were going to just dismember us i didn't even want to go out with them because i saw them and <laughs> i felt like the met the trainer in rocky one when apollo creed's on the phone and and rocky's hitting the meat and he Yay. goes, you might want to check this dude out, man. He looks like he means business. And you hear Apollo in the other room, he goes, yeah, 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 I mean business too. And and you see the trainer look at him like, I don't think he knows what I'm talking about. That's right. what happened with Snot. I saw Snot play, and I went back and told the band, this band is very big trouble for anybody to deal with. And he went, yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're big trouble too, man. I'm like, I don't think you I know. I don't think you understand what I'm saying here. Yeah. This session is brought to you by my friends at Gretsch Drums, and it's undeniable, that great Gretsch sound. And they actually just redid their website. It's really cool. You can go on there. You can learn about the history of the Gretsch Drums, how they started in Brooklyn. They're now located in South Carolina, where they make and manufacture all of their all of their drums. And I am 100% behind the Catalina Jazz Set. I've been telling people for a long time, that's the kit to get if you're looking for a a cheaper set that is going to just sound amazing. But I highly recommend checking out GretschDrums.com and just, it's really cool how you can, you can go through all their products and really learn the history of that amazing, iconic drum manufacturer. Check them out today, GretschDrums.com. Also, don't forget about my friends at Drums Etc. Drums Etc. is a drum shop that is owned and operated by drummers. Everyone who works there is a drummer. The founder is a drummer. And they can answer any questions that you may have. And they can get any parts that you want. And all of the great manufacturers who advertise on this podcast, they distribute and, and sell all of their products as well. So you can get those great Evans heads. You can get those Promark sticks. All of that stuff that we talk about in the podcast, you can get at Drums Etc., drumsetc.com. You can visit them in person in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, or you can go online, drumsetc.com, or give them a call, 1-800-922-DRUM, and you can talk to a drummer. The guy who answers the phone is going to be the one who helps you with your order, who packs your order, and sends it out to you. A great, great pro drum shop there in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Check them out at drumsetc, drumsetc.com. And don't forget to let no circle box you in. And that is the message from Evans and their new level 360 head. The level 360 gives you the most consistent fit for your drums so you can get a greater tonal range, effortless tuning, and the freedom to express yourself any way you want. Best part, you can learn more about Evans drum heads and all of their great products at evansdrumheads.com. Now let's get back at it with Morgan Rose. Whenever we would go off and play any shows with any other bands, you know, that were playing after us, you know, we would always, I always had this talk that I would have with the band where, again, you know, I mean, I, I keep having to reiterate that, you know, we're very respectful guys. You know, we're not type of the type of guys that want anything bad on anybody. We never wanted anybody to have a terrible show or anything like that. We just kind of wanted to have a really good show. And if it could be a little better than the person after us, that'd be even better. But I mean, it was just, you know, have a good show to everybody. And, uh, but I will say that there were times when there would be bands that weren't extremely accommodating 
And uh, so we would go up there, and I would tell the band before we went up, I'd be like, we have no room, we have no lights, we have, uh, you know, we don't have any of the bells and whistles that all these guys have, and we don't have that kind of support from our record company that they have, but there's absolutely nothing that's going to save them from the next 45 minutes. <laughs> and that was the talk I would always have. And we would get ready to go up there, and it would be like your teeth would be You'd need to have dental work. You'd, your mouth would be so slammed tight, wanting to kill somebody. You know that. Right. So there's so much adrenaline to go out there and tee off on people, and uh, and it was easy. You know, I kind of felt bad about it because again, you know, most of the time it was it was rock bands that were bordering on, you know, pop almost. You know, it was just. I mean, you couldn't. It, it would be like. I can give you the flip side of this, who, you know, we're incredibly good friends with, like, Scott Phillips, you know, from Alter Bridge mm-hmm. and Tremonti. And, uh, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, Mark and, and Scott from Alter Bridge, they were both in, uh, you know, Creed. And uh, I remember Seven Dust going out with Creed, and I remember saying, we're going to hurt these dudes, man. We're going to really put on these guys real hard. And they mutilated us on a nightly basis. Really? Uh, I just realized really quick that, you know, our world of back then, it was mayhem and, you know, crowd surfing and stage diving and aggression. Um, there was nothing that was going to beat hands up in the air, singing every song is louder than the band. And, uh, you know, feeling like they were at a revival. I mean, I remember the first night I sat down and the crowd stood up when we started. And by the time we got halfway through the first song, half of them were sitting because you were dealing with a demographic that really did not want to hear what we had to say or what we were all about at all. And you're in seated arenas where it was it was like it was tough. I mean, wasn't I, Creed like a religious band? Yeah, but yeah. like they, but sort of like, but like an undercover religious band, yes. right? Like they never, because they were never billed a religious band or right. booked as a religious exactly. band. Exactly, exactly. Right. It was, uh, but we were there for that thing to blow up. You know, for them when that with arms wide open thing happened, it was like. The shows went from barely selling out arenas to selling out arenas in 15 minutes, you know. Right. And we were on tour with them when it happened, and it was just like, oh, my God, dude, this is a monster. You know, this is a huge band. And we were extremely close with all of them, you know. I mean, we – but we would leave that, and then we'd go on Tattoo the Earth with Slayer and Slipknot and, you know, Sepultura. Right. And then we'd leave that and go back and do a run with Creed. So and were you opening for Creed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, that was the thing. It was like a lot of people would say, you know, this band is really, this band is so versatile that they can go and play with Creed one minute and play with Slipknot the next day. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, I'm starting to realize something. And what I'm realizing is we're too heavy for the Creed people and we're not heavy enough for the Slipknot people. Really? And that was where the loyalty fell. That was where we started to get this following of, or not even following, this supportive 
you know, I can't stand calling people fans or followers or stuff like that. Just the support and the uh, the loyalty was built at that point. You know, mm-hmm. we were really res- we we really appreciated the people that came to see us and would stop by the bus or be at the merch table or go to a meet and greet or something. The people that liked our band, we would give them anything because we knew that it was real because we played in front of way more people than were, than were supporting us. Mm-hmm. So we knew the ones that were there to support us were really there for us. And, uh, and that, was, that was probably the best thing that we ever did was appreciate the game and appreciate the people. Um, what do you, what's, your, what's your advice for people who are trying to build a fan base? I mean, do you, have, do you, do you feel like you, you guys did anything strategically or was it just a matter of sort of where you were at and, and the way things naturally happened? Well, we, you know, it's interesting. Um, when I was younger, mystique was everything. Um, you know, going to a concert and, you know, spending 15 bucks for a ticket, going to the show, spending 10 or 15 on a t-shirt, sitting there watching the band and this unknown opening band half the time, you know, it was like, I bought the record. I bought the magazines before they came to town. I bought the t-shirt. I got the ticket. I'm I'm invested. I'm into this band. I know everything about them, and yet I know nothing about them because mm-hmm. there was no social media. I didn't know what somebody had for lunch or what you know they were doing that day, and so you had to wait. And that mystique was huge. I mean, it was massive. Um, you know, I met Tommy Lee through the roof of a car when I was probably 15 years old. And now he's one of my best friends in in the world, you know. But, mm-hmm. um, and that that feels like it was a hundred years ago, which it almost was. But, I mean the the idea was mystique back then. You didn't really have to worry about. You had no real choice. I mean, there wasn't many people saying. I didn't know anybody that knew anybody. Put it that way. It wasn't like I met Tommy Lee and he's a really cool dude, um, or, you know. I saw what Tommy Lee was doing on Instagram, man. He's crazy. That's really cool. There was nobody that knew the personality. You would just see what you what they would allow you to see in magazines and stuff, and that would be the end of it. And now, you know, it's so much different. So back then, Mystique was everything. Now, Mystique is is a killer. There's very few bands out there that if they don't get active with social media, like we were talking about the other day, if they don't get active with this stuff. You know, it could either be the kiss of death, or you're just gonna, you're just gonna sit in your spot. You're not gonna move any further. Right. Uh, so, I mean, my advice is different than it was. I mean, back then when we started, our our thing was again, you know, it was very easy for us. We started out playing in front of five people, and we would go and hang out with those five people, and we put on the best show that we could for those five people. And then next time, I mean, we played New York thirteen times on the first record. And wow. Yeah. That's a lot. And, and it was like, we thought, I mean, I, we were, again, we were so naive and, and just completely ignorant that we thought we went from playing Coney Island High in front of 25, 50 people at an industry show to headlining Hammerstein Ballroom and selling it out on the same record. That's, and, and how, and in what, like a, a year, and a year, a year and a half? It's 21 months. Wow. And, you know, by the time we got to that point, you know, there were 
the Godsmacks. I mean, our, one of the, the last tour we did on the first record, there was a band called Second Coming, who I loved. I can't believe they didn't get bigger than they did. And playing second was Kid Rock, and playing third was Godsmack, and we were headlining. And then the first show we did coming out of the first record on the second record was Powerman 5000 playing second, Stain playing third. And, you know, we had gone on, on our first record, we were playing first on a bill with Powerman 5000 headlining. And by the time we hit the beginning of our second record, they were playing second and we were headlining. So was it normal? I guess it was normal then to put so many bands on bills, huh? Yeah, I mean, it was no less than three and sometimes four or five. Because right. um, I mean, I remember even going to see Bush, you know, like years ago, and there was a bunch of bands. Yeah. There was a bunch of bands. I, I just feel like it's just not that way anymore. I mean, now it's the now the thing is, is I, I'm still like a dinosaur mentally sometimes when I look and say, okay, they just had a tour that had Five Finger Death Punch, uh, and it had 6 a.m. and you know and shine down on it and i think there was somebody else that was good on that was pretty well known on that as well and i'm going that's like three headliners yeah you know and in, and in our style of music now it's turning into you need three headliners to do an arena i mean and not even just now we did a tour a few years ago and it was Corn disturbed us and in this moment. And we were playing arenas and sometimes they weren't sold out, you know, and I'm like, right. damn, you know, I guess that, you know, we weren't big enough to help out because they needed another headliner somewhere in there. So when we go out, you know, we'll do 1,000 to 2,500 seaters or whatever. And, you know, we do really well. But, and, you know, we have really cool bands that we bring out with us. But we're in a really strange position because we're kind of, not a headliner in the in the big scheme of things in the big world but we're you know too big to play the smaller than that places and we can't find bands that'll play below us that aren't i mean like bands that i would figure are kind of in our our level of uh of popularity i guess or ticket sales would be bands like you know i mean us and hell yeah would be a cool one mm -hmm. um if we did something with Papa Roach, I would want to play before them because I think that they probably do more than we do. I mean, you know, Alter Bridge is another one. You know, it's like there's a few of us that are in that position right there, but we don't all get together and do the shows. I don't know why. Maybe it's been album cycles, but that's that's really the name of the game now is to, uh, you know, kill them with numbers. Right. You, uh, you know. Do you think album cycling is starting to be a thing of the past, too? It has to be. I mean, yeah. it has to be at some point. I don't know. Because, I mean, there's so many bands that I talk to now, um, you know, like, you know, my we talked about before, I'm one of my best friends is in Bloodhound Gang, and, and you know, they're, they'll just release a single every month, you know, mm -hmm. and, and never really release the album, or just when all the singles are done, then you can buy, you know, the album. Yeah. Versus, like you know okay we have this record coming out it's going to come out in whatever you know it's going to come out in february and then it, we're going to tour from here to here and then we'll get back and then we go in the studio and then you know it's like sure you know the 
I get, and maybe some of the listeners don't understand like what album cycling is, but basically like you go, you record the record, then you tour to support the record, then you come home and then you start working on the next record or you go out again. And then, you know, it's just a cycle of putting out the record touring to support it. Yeah. Coincidentally, I was, I was, uh, and this was probably, I mean, this was the case, you know, probably in the early nineties too, that, that I was listening to a, uh, an audio book called Supermensch. It's mm-hmm. about um, it's about Shep Gordon, who's like a you know he managed Alice Cooper for he found Alice Cooper and managed him for you know forever still does, and he's like a super agent uh, in Hollywood. Really good book, but the guy was saying that most of the time they didn't make a lot of money on they didn't make any money on touring. They they were only going on tour to support the record. Yeah, that was it, and then. They weren't making any money, so that's why bands started playing arenas because it was just you know num- strength in numbers. So they would put yeah. more people because the tickets were only like three or five bucks. Yeah, and they needed a lot of a lot more people because they had to make money on the touring because the bands were losing money on touring. And now it's the complete opposite, you know, like oh. album sales don't pay the bills, and now touring and merch pays all the bills. You got it. Which is it's like a complete one eighty on on how it used to be. Not that that's not that that's a good thing or a bad thing, but just it's it's funny how the the tides have shifted. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I I really don't know where it's going to end up. I mean, are you optimistic about it or are you pessimistic about it? I mean, I go back and forth. You know, I I still look at the positives and the negatives for everything. I mean, I can see. I guess that we have to retrain the brain, which a bunch of uh, tons of, of music listeners don't have to retrain anything because they're trained to what's going on right now. But for us other folk that grew up on buying material, um, you have to you know retool the brain to realize, okay, that revenue stream is debilitating itself into oblivion. And... You know, we have to accept the fact that money is going to be made here, here, and here. And there are other ways that have opened up. I mean, obviously, you know, when again, we talked about this the other day, but like streaming and advertising and stuff, you know, off of popularity, social media wise and all that stuff, you know, there's, there's money to be made there. I just, you know, I don't think that the perception of a successful, you know, in relative terms, musician, I think is totally out of whack to the public to you're the saying the perception public. versus reality yeah to the buying public i think that they would probably think and i'm not going to crush anybody's dreams here including you know my own but i would be willing to bet that they probably think that i've got six or seven cars and you know there's five or six bedrooms in this house right now and maybe we have somebody cleaning it once or twice a week and that would be from selling millions of records and touring the world harder than I can think of any other band that I can think of. You know, we've toured right. harder than anybody, and we've played thousands of shows and sold. How many? Rec- I was gonna say, how many records have you guys sold? I mean, at this point, it's got to be over five million. Yeah, you know, but uh, you know, Seven Dust Law. When we were with TVT, we sold probably close to four million and never saw. A any money off of record sales, not a dollar. Really? And yeah, it didn't, didn't bad see deal it. or well, I think it was always a way to say, you know, well, you haven't recouped because, you know, you owe us this much money. 
which is a whole nother story, you know, Hey, um, you know, I president of the label of a label, let's just say any label so that there's no, like, I don't have any legal action anywhere. Let's just say anybody. How about an A&R guy for a record company flies from Atlanta to California to meet with somebody, you know, about anything. And during the conversation, they bring up the name of a band that's on the label. And next thing you know, um, the dinner has been split up between you and whoever else they spoke of. And it might've been as good as a, you know, what do you think about this band? Now nah, I think we'll pass. Okay. Well, we talked about them. So they're on the bill. And so dinners and flights and hotels and all that stuff, the band's paying for everything. Right. Cause you're, they're working on quote unquote working right. on your behalf. I'll never forget going to New York and going to Rio Dizio, really cool, like Brazilian steakhouse on our first record. And, uh, I think that place is still there. Dude, it was the first one of its kind. I mean, before Fogo de Chao and all that stuff was Rio Dizio, and it was badass. That was the first place I had uh, Picanha and Grappa and all that stuff. Is that and like it, down in, uh, is it like in Alphabet City? I think it might be. I was literally just talking to somebody about this the other day, and he's like, you got to check out this restaurant. I thought he said it was called Rio de Janeiro, but I think it, but Rio Dizio, I'm looking yeah. up here, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, so we go. I'm like, there. I've never heard of this restaurant before. Two people have brought it up to me in the last week, which is weird. If it's as good as I remember it being good, you know, as it being 20 years ago, then it's it's a must eat, you know. But we go there, and there's you know 20 people at the dinner table, and everybody's drinking, and everybody's eating. It's fifty dollars a plate just to smell the place, and then you're you know we've got bottles of wine everywhere, liquor everywhere. And, uh, of course, you know, you go and at the end of everything, you, you try to look and see why you owe so much money back to a record company and you look and sure as shit, there was a dinner and it was there and we paid for everybody. Really? You know, that's, that's the way that it works. You know, it's like, um, we got to the point where we didn't want them to take us to dinner anymore. Put it that way. (laughs) The first few records... We were like, man, when are you going to take us out to eat? And then after we figured out what was going on, they would say, you guys want to eat? We're like, no, no, we're good. <laughs> we're all good. We'll just swing on by this jack in the crack and we'll be all good. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. I mean, don't they have to like, I guess they don't have to clear it with you, huh? No. No. That's insane. No, so, I mean, back to the question of, you know, how to promote the band. Uh, you know, as I go on my rant here, um, we met those five people and let them know how much we appreciated them being there and supporting us. And then they told five and then they told so on and so on and so on. And that's really the way it went. It went 13 shows in New York. It went from 50 to 5,000 or 4,000 or whatever Hammerstein holds. And, uh, most of that stuff was, I mean, once you get to a certain point, then it's what's supposed to happen there. You know, like you can get to a point where, you know, you're doing up 50 people, 200, 400. Once you start getting into 1,000, 2,000, I mean, we played Roseland before that. We played, uh, you know, we played every place that, that you could play there. That was our stop right before Madison Square Garden that we never got to. But, I mean, you know, you play 
your way up. And once you get past that one, 2000 spot, then most of those people that are into that style, anybody else that's into that style is like, well, everybody's going. So I guess I'm going and it just kind of builds a little quicker, Mm -hmm. but we enjoyed meeting each and every person all the way up until it was impossible to meet each and every person. Right. You know, it's funny. I remember I mean, we've brought up Creed a couple of times. I remember watching, I think it, I, I want to say it was Corin Capshaw again, but I might be wrong. Uh, but their manager was saying like, we went to, you know, we would go to these towns and there would be 200 people there. And we would, after the show, we'd talk to all of them and meet them. And then the next time we went back, there were 400. And then the next time we went back, there were 700. And it just kind of, you know, and it's so many, I've seen it so many times and, I we used to do the opposite of this in my band, but I see it so many times that guys get done playing and they walk either backstage or even if they're playing in like a little bar, they like go somewhere where they can't be found. Sure. And I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? Go yeah. out and go out and talk to these. There's 15 people out there that came to see you. You're too cool to go out and, and, and say hello and thank you for coming and be humble, you know? And, and I just, many, many fights with, with band people that wouldn't do that when we were starting out. That's so um, important. Our publicist yeah. used to say that all, I mean, when we got a little bit bigger, you know, our public, we had a publicist and she was like, you know, at, at, during set breaks, you can go and chill and sort of get your thoughts together. But like what, after the show, you got to go out, you got to talk to people. We got to shake hands and, and meet people and thank them for coming. And not in a disingenuous way, you got to do it and you got to mean it. Like these people are, these people, if you keep doing this are going to be the ones that are paying your salary. That's what they're doing. You know, I, mean, I, I, you know, the thing is, it's like, and I'll, I'll, you know, I try to let some of the people that, you know, don't really, I mean, you know, there's certain times where, you know, I had a 102 temperature and I was playing and I felt like I was going to black out on the deck and I got done and they shuffled me off and stuffed me into a bunk really quick and put some medicine in me and I got through the show and that was that. And then of course the next day there's, you know, I bought tickets to this and I've seen them this many times and I can't believe that Morgan couldn't give me two seconds of his time to talk drums outside the bus. And I'm like, you know, there is the time that maybe somebody is having something happen. You know, we are right. without question humans. And I think most of the people that come and see us play are better than me at being a good human being. But I appreciate those people as much or more than anybody that's ever played music. And most of them know that the ones that don't, the ones that haven't, that I haven't met that maybe, there was, I don't know, my kid is in the hospital or I'm about to go to the hospital or, you know, I'm on medication for heart palpitations and I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack or any of that stuff. You know, anything mm-hmm. that happens in the real world, when you're out on the road for two months straight and, you know, you happen to run into some town where today is not a good day, unfortunately, they could reap the the bottom side of that, you know, but right. I mean... 95% of the time, everybody should be out there. They should be out there, you know, just like you said. I mean, it shouldn't it, it shouldn't feel like work. It shouldn't feel like, you know, oh, God, I got to go talk to these people right now. Oh, no. It should be like, hey, man, they're the boss. That's how I look at it. The people <laughs> yeah. that come to your band, they're the boss. Yeah. You're not the boss. You might think you're the boss, but I'll tell you how quick you won't be the boss. They don't buy tickets anymore. Now who's the boss? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And that's the thing I think that a lot of bands fail to realize is, you know, they're on top for a minute. They have a little bit of, of uh, success and they, they just selfishly only want to do what they want to do. And they, and again, it should be real easy to say, you know what, I appreciate the fact that this person right here bought these shoes that I have. They are responsible for putting food in my kid's mouth. Right. They pay my mortgage. They pay my car payment. They pay for everything because I work out here. Mm-hmm. So who pays me? They pay me. They're the boss. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, that's just I, the way I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And maybe I, there, there is one thing, and you can attest to this way more than I can, uh, absolutely, but there's a weird, and I don't, maybe I'm different, but there's a weird feeling of being on stage in front of 10, 15, 20,000 people. And then after the show, people sort of coming up to you and worshiping you. And there's, there's, there's no question that like it, it messes with your head a little bit absolutely. and you're like, maybe I am that cool, you know? Well, you know, I started that alien freakware company and the reason why I did it was because I didn't, I didn't want to do it. I didn't, I was like, who the hell's going to buy this? You know, who am I? And, uh, what happened was I was doing a signing somewhere in the, uh, in a record store back when, you know, we had record stores and, uh, I was doing a signing there, and Vinny, our bass player, was just talking and talking, talking. You know, like I mean, I want to meet everybody, but the lines out the door. They've given us this much time to do it, and half the line's not going to make it through because my boy's talking like crazy, like life story shit. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, so I'm not only that, but I'm trying to, you know, I don't have. I, back then, I had no social disorder now you know as i got older you know it's a little bit different i'm not as medicated but uh you know but um i started doodling on my signature and i drew that little face with the little alien face on it do some antennas on it and then at the end of the whole thing when we were all done with it there were like two or three kids that came back through the line when we were getting ready to leave go hey morgan can you put that little face on my signature and i'm like huh so I put it on there, and then I just started signing it like that. And then somebody said, "Man, that's that's a cool. You should, you know, that's a cool logo. That thing." And I'm like, "Oh, that's my little dude. That's my little face, <laughs> my little alien face." And he goes, "That's a logo, man." And I'm like, "I don't know, man. For what?" And he goes, "No, man. Like a logo, like any other logo. It's just a cool logo." I'm like, "Oh, okay." So then about a year later, somebody said, "Man, you should put that on a T-shirt." And I was like, who would buy it? I'm just, it's from me. You know, I mean, I'm not anybody. And uh, so they kind of coaxed me into making, you know, 100 of them. And they sold. And I was like, oh, damn. Well, let's do another 100. And hey, why don't we make another design? And then it happened. You know, it just started to happen. And uh, then I tattooed it on me. And now there's like hundreds of people that have that thing tattooed on them. And I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, at least it's a logo, and right. then somebody comes up, and there's me tattooed on them, and I'm like, "Well, there went that. <laughs> that's not really. A logo. That's not a logo anymore, <laughs> you know." And and I am completely humbled that anyone would do that. I'm speechless. That's insane, right? Yeah, 
it's 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 you know it's beyond words i just don't know i'm not the level of the people that you would put on you i mean i and i mean that's just the way i am i mean but you know it's it's crazy man well and it's, i think and that's you know and i think that having that you know having people uh, maybe worship's a bad word but like you know looking up idolizing you like so i went to see um my buddy chris coolos who's in oar and you know they were they were they did like this literal sort of like theater run and it was like it's packed with people that people are yelling screaming and then you go backstage and like everybody in the band is so humble and just down to earth and they're just you know normal dudes and i'm like man they've been doing it like they've been doing it as long as you guys have you know what i mean since like sure. the 90s and that you know you're getting you're you're getting people taking care of you you got crew you got a bus you got catering you have you know sort of people you have some people you know depending on what level you have handlers and all this stuff and it's like to keep that hum to keep that humility is hard i don't care who you are you know and i think, I think yeah i would have to think when it comes to that level cuz i've never i've never seen anything like that you know i've never I've never been into the. Or I've never gotten to that level, and I do look at when I see. Yeah, you guys have tour buses and and techs and all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and we've you know, and we've definitely back in the day. Again, it was a little bit different where you could, you'd walk off the bus. There could be two hundred and fifty people outside the bus. Right. You know, and it's like, whoa, man, that's like that's like a concert. That's mm -hmm. like almost the amount of people at the show outside the bus. Right. And, you know, and that was, that was fun. To me, it was like, okay, you've made it easy. You know, I'm just going to stand right out here and everybody can just do whatever they want to do. If you want to say anything to me, I'm here and I'm glad to meet you. And I'm blessed that you care that much to sit out here in the freezing cold to talk to this idiot. I, how do you stay humble through that, though? I mean, well, uh, when I went back to that, I bet everybody thinks that I, you know, live in a mansion with, uh, you know, seven cars. I live well, but I work really hard to, uh, most of my work is being away from the family. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it, to say that, yeah, it does, it does get a little tough to, uh, to play really hard. Like I try to do every night after, you know, this long of doing it. But most of the work is being away from the family. And I'm away from the family because those people want to come and see the band. Because once they stop coming to see the band, then, you know, that's that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just have never, I mean, I said this a long time ago in an interview somewhere, but I had said something to the effect of, you know, I have a love affair with the people that support this band. Like I love them. And, you know, I know a lot of them. I mean, over the years, I mean, there's people, there's so many of them that have seen hundreds of shows, hundreds. And I'm just like, man, you know, you think about that, you come home for a month and you start thinking about that kind of stuff. And you're like, Jesus Christ, man. I mean, that's forget about the money side of it and the travel and the, 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 sacrifice that they made to whether it be work or whatever else talking about 
hundreds of shows and hours, you know, to support this band. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, they are basically supporting my life. Right. You know, they they take care of me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, it's easy to stay humble with that because I just look at it and I'm like, plus I've, I've met so many of them. I mean, it's uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I consider myself a decent human being. I would like to say that I've turned into a pretty good man. Um, but, I mean, I've definitely made my mistakes over my career on this earth. And uh, and I met so many people that have had it tough and that have persevered and become so amazing and, you know, just come through on the other side and just good human beings, you know. A lot of times I lose my faith in humanity and a lot of times I get it back from the people that support our band. Yeah, that makes you know? sense. Sure. I, I, and it's not there, there's a it's weird man it's like with seven dust it's very strange it's like and and with me in particular too you know with the people that are into what i do you know as far as you know you have your people that like guitar and your people like drums well the people that like me that might focus a little more on me than somebody else i just look at them and i'm like this isn't it it's weird it doesn't feel like it, it feels like we're on the level you know this is not I don't want anybody to feel like they're beneath me in any way possible. I mean, because this is just a, this is entertainment. Right. You know, that's all it is. At the end of the day, I'm definitely going to stop jamming one day and it's going to be sooner than later. And more importantly, I'm going to go <gasps> and it's going to be over. And I'm going to go in the fucking ground just the same way everybody else does. And there's no fucking change in that. Right. That's going to happen. And I'm like, what do you want to leave behind? You know, what what did I do that was so special that made somebody, you know, skip a heartbeat? You know, it's like that's where the whole idea of I don't understand it sometimes. But I just want to make everybody make it clear to everybody that I end up when I do meet them. I'm like, we're all good, dude. Like, we're all good. We're on the same level at best. You're probably above me. Let me catch up to you. Let you know, my name's Morgan. Shake the hand. Give me the hug. What do you do for a living? Right. And I bet you, you probably do something that has more of an impact in the big scheme of things on this world than I do. Well, I think that, that entertainment That's, music and... is not right. The, I mean, music is amazing and it's a, it's a healer. Right. Right. I mean, right. you know, as do far you, as, I mean, do you think about legacy a lot? Um, not in the egotistical way, I just think about it as I hope that I hope people have something nice to say about me when it's over. You know, I hope that I hope that they don't think that I abused the privilege of being invited into this game. And I hope that, you know, they think, you know, I met that dude and he was cool. He was, he played hard and all that. And I I think of it more from a personal level because I mean, it goes back to, I mean, I we, I have these debates with my friends all the time, man, where it's like, who's the best basketball player of all time? You know, and it's like... Michael Jordan. You're, you're going to get Jordan, and you're going to get LeBron. And or I'm Kobe. Like, oh, Jesus, man. Or Kobe, you know, for a while it was Kobe. And I'm like, you know, you're never going to know, and it really doesn't matter. And it's a lot easier to figure that out in that world 
than it is in music. In music, I mean... At least there's stats in sports. At least there's stats. And at least, you know, there's the game is played the same way, basically. I mean, it, right. it's the rules are the same for the most part. And in music, it's all over the map. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, if somebody said, okay, you got one guy to pick, who's it going to be? Who are you going to put up against anybody one-on-one -on -one in a room full of 100, you know, great critics to make a decision? I'd say Dennis Chambers all day long. Mm -hmm. You know, because... If I had to say there was a best, it would have to be him. But there's so many guys that are out of control, great, that, you know, like I was asked to do Modern Drummer Fest before. I laughed. I was like, <laughs> hell no, I ain't doing that thing. <laughs> you know, I did PASIC once, and I did it right after Sonny Emery, who I'm buddies with. And I was like, Jesus, he got me playing the first time publicly on my own. And I'm playing after, after Sonny. Sonny. Oh, my God. And he was like, man, it's all good. I'm doing like this hi-hat thing. It's very, very basic stuff, man. I'm like, thank you. And, you know, thank you for not going up there and just dismembering me before I get up on the deck. Right. And I went up there with, uh, with Ferris, Mike Ferris from Pearl, and he introduced me and I walked up to the mic and I stared at everybody and I made it really uncomfortable. I didn't say anything for about 30 seconds. And then I just dropped the mic and hit the ground. Like I passed out <laughs> and I got up and I was like, I just had to get that out of the way, you know, just kidding, you know, but <laughs> I'm Morgan and this is nerve wracking, you know, like I don't right. belong here. I've, I, well, I wouldn't say that that you were, you're there. I just am still in that same place as I was as that 18-year-old dude that got kicked out of the band that only had one practice. You know, I'd still, I think it's what what keeps me, what definitely keeps me humble is that, and I've had some of my buddies say, man, you got to be careful, man. You keep on saying no, no, no to everybody, and they're going to start saying, you know, he's starving for attention. And right. I'm like, I don't get that, dude, because I don't. I just look at everything around me and I'm like, monster, monster, oh God, here's another monster, monster, I can't do that, I'll never be able to do that, you know, and then I'll sit down with John Tempesta, who is hands down like the savior to my career, I mean, that dude got me everything I got, everything I've been given from any company basically came through John Tempesta, he's, oh, really? oh he's my dearest, and, uh, but you know, he's like, dude, you do what you do, man, and you do that great you do your thing you know and you should be you should you know you're you, you're great at what you do man what's the problem and i'm like I, I don't know about all that you know i'm just trying to get by bro so that's where i sit on it i look at it and go i don't know where the where the attention came from uh you know when i won the modern drummer award i wanted to give it back i, I, I was like let's give this to somebody else <laughs> You know, there's too many dudes on this list right now, man, for me to be winning this thing. And then, of course, you got the nice handful of blabbermouth and, and uh, internet trolls that want to say, that dude sucks, he doesn't deserve that. I'm like, you're goddamn right, I don't. Yeah, but come on. They, any, they say that about anybody. They'll, you know, like, like Dennis Chambers, you put it up there, and there's five people that comment that are like, I don't get it, this dude sucks. You know, yeah, yeah. no pocket, or like, whatever. It's like... <laughs> Yeah, I love the no pocket thing. That's my favorite. It's like you get one dude that's like, you know, like somebody will win it that's like in the in the prog world, you know, and some guy will go in there and go no pocket, you know. Yeah. And then, <laughs> But then in this, that same dude will go on there and say, I don't know what the whole big hang up is on, on Bonham. Yeah. Like, I thought you just commented that some dude didn't have a pocket. What about that dude? <laughs> yeah. You know? 
it's funny man that's like that the whole criticism I, we're not going to go down that road but like just <laughs> the youtube like just just the criticism and it's like i i literally got an email today from someone who said was, was like you're the internet that you or the internet the interview that you did with jack DeJanet fucking sucked you're a dickhead and f you <laughs> and i was like Wait till you get the ones you're going to get on this one. (laughs) (laughs) But I was like, dude, he didn't even leave it. He didn't. He put in a fake email address and didn't leave his name. And I'm like, you know, but what? So like criticism, I let it roll off my shoulders. But it's like for the people out there who are scared to put their content out, I always tell them it doesn't matter how good it is. People are going to say it sucks. It's it, it's it's just the nature of the beast. Somebody out there is going to be like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And you got to be okay with dealing with that. Yeah, you have to have, I mean, I've developed some thick skin, you know. I mean, yeah. there's nothing, you know, and it comes from everywhere. It doesn't mm-hmm. even come from people that know anything about the person they're talking about. You know? Right. I mean, I got engaged like a, you know, a month ago almost. Oh, and, congratulations. Uh, thank you. And, uh, you know, like, my fiance put a picture up there and some dude writes on there, you can't be serious. Like some tool bag, you know, that just sold his company for 50 bucks that owns a restaurant, you know, writes that on there. And I'm looking at it and I'm looking at her and I'm like, back in the day, it's like that dude has to get pounded, you know, right. but now it's like anybody says what they want to say and you just have to build the skin up long enough, you know, to say, okay, now I get it. I can't please everybody and I probably can't please most. So right, right. And who, like, I'll let you do what you're going to do and I'm going to laugh at it and be happy with my, my, you know, thick, loyal group of people that I can call friends and family and I'm all good with that. Right. It's, it's meanwhile, like, secretly I want to beat the shit out of that. Dude. <laughs> you know what? I was like, I got that email today and I was, I was mad for a little while. And then I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm in the arena. I'm doing my thing, and if you want to judge me from the outside, then okay, that's fine. So I'm cool with that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like do your thing, and then I'll I'll do mine. So, so what do you have? What's what's on the horizon, man? I, well, you just got engaged, so you're going to be getting married soon. But what else is what else you have going on? Uh, well, I work for a record company that uh. We have a band that's going out on Warped this year, coming up well, this year now. And uh, so I've got to work with them. They're doing a new record now. So I'm A&R in that. So I have to go through that with them and get that record ready to go. Um, but as far as Seven Dust goes, uh, we're pro- well, we have the Shiprock thing to do next week. So I leave Saturday to, uh, I don't know when this is happening. So I'll just say I have the Shiprock thing to do. <laughs> And uh, so we'll get done with that thing. And then um, I think there's like one or two fly dates this year. And other than that, um, you know, Seven Dust will start writing the new record. I'm thinking maybe in March and then not releasing it until first quarter 2018. So, you know, it's uh, it's going to be interesting this year. I'm going to get myself into uh, a lot more stuff this year on my own um like a uh a podcast there you go <clears throat> uh, there you go 
and, uh, we're gonna know. get you to start you're you're gonna start a podcast and it's gonna be awesome i think it'd be good man i think i well i shouldn't go as far as say good but i think it'd be uh entertaining i mean you know it'll it, be it'll be good we'll make it we'll make it good <laughs> not to say that the drummer's resource podcast is good either so like no dude, we could like fantastic you know, we could I'm put out good. two really crappy podcasts and we can get emails about how much they suck Right. <laughs> <laughs> so like it'll be we we can commiserate together we'll have some good stuff <laughs> you know i mean i think i want to do that um you know i've never let the genie out of the bottle you know i've never you know i've never really done anything other than what people have have shown that they've videotaped so you know there's been discussion of me doing a bunch of youtube stuff and you know putting some really cool camera shots together and going in there and hacking through some stuff and uh so i think i'll do that um there might be something that i do musically but i don't even know if i'm gonna go into it yet i won't go into it because i don't know if if we're gonna do it or not and uh you can save the big reveal for your podcast yeah yeah there you go so my manager was already like, you know, oh God, man, you're on a podcast, you know, just just keep your mouth shut, please, God, don't. I'm like, take it easy, bro. <laughs> take it easy, man. I got this. I'm not gonna go political on anybody. I'm not I've done go- it. I've done an interview before. I got. It. Yeah, I'm not gonna go political. I'm not gonna go religion. Be- meanwhile, you know, what do you think about Trump? You know? Yeah. <laughs> that's all i say i'm like you know a lot of times people will be coming on and i'm like all right two things no religion no politics that's it dude you know i'm like i don't care what we could talk about anything else but but we're just you know we're not we're not gonna do that so So, i mean so who did you but no just kidding yeah exactly that covers most of the year i mean you know we're trying to figure out you know the band goes out band makes money band goes home band doesn't make any money band's gonna be home for a year so you know, you get you have your revenue streams that come in through publishing and through, you know, do a thing here and there, but you know, you don't want to take everything that you've made and destroy it all from not working in a year, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh there'll be a little bit of work for Seven Dust and then, you know, hey, I'm available. Who wants to jam? <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, Morgan, I'm going to uh, I'm going to let you go. I appreciate you taking all the time to chat with me, and I have a sneaking suspicion this is not going to be the last time that we chat on record. So, oh yeah, definitely. Uh, but this was this was really fun. I like the I like the the storytelling and the, the just sort of winding through how all of this stuff happened. It's really it's really interesting because we usually don't get that deep into it. Uh, well, it was cool for me to do, man. I, I haven't, uh, you know, we've been off for a little while, so it's like, I was that was kind of a, a, a serious walk down memory lane for me. I kind of, I very much appreciate the, uh, you know, the the opportunity to even talk about it. It's of course, crazy. man. Of course. Any and you know, anytime you want to come back, we can chat more. Um, I'd love to have you. So absolutely, man. It's uh, it's Doctor Nick. It's like therapeutic. Get on, <laughs> get on the phone with Nick and talk about you know why. So why are you insecure? Well, <laughs> right. back in at MI when I was nineteen, I got kicked out of a band after playing two songs. <laughs> you got laid out on the couch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So open up a spot for me next week for an hour. I'll I got it a little quicker. <laughs> and then you'll you'll say something real, really, really deep, and I'll just look at the clock and be like, "Time's up. We'll talk next week." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> Perfect. 
Cool, man. Morgan, again, thank you. It was great having you. And uh, like I said, anytime, man. We'd love to have you back. Thanks so much. Much love, Nick. Good deal, man. Talk to you soon. You got it, bud. There you have it, Mr. Morgan Rose. If you dug that, be sure to thank Morgan. Go onto the social media platforms. Thank him for being part of the podcast. You can learn where you can connect with him if you go to drummersresource.com forward slash session 239. And all the information that we talked about is all there, including the ways that you can get in touch with him. Also, like I said before, if you are in California for NAM and you want to meet up, you want to say what's up, you want to chat, let me know. Shoot me an email, nick at drummersresource.com nick at drummersresource.com or just hit me up on Twitter or Facebook wherever whatever social media platforms you want to use let me know and we'll definitely make it happen so I hope you enjoyed this episode and until the next one keep drumming thank you so much for listening and I'll be talking to you soon peace <laughs>